0: Let's turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 for our study this evening. 1 Corinthians 10. Father, we do want to continue to lift Jedediah up to you in prayer. We pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and Lord, that you touch him and heal him. And we pray for a full recovery in his life. May you continue to give strength and wisdom to his parents. And we thank you for their knowledge and this great adventure of faith that they're on. And where would you provide for them? Would you give them smooth travels as they get on the plane uh, tomorrow? God, would you give us teachable hearts as we read your word this evening? Father, I pray you give me clarity and grace and strength in teaching your word. Lord, you know us. You know each of us. Uh, You know the joys and challenges in our lives. You know the area where we need encouragement and where we need conviction. Or would you be exalted? Jesus, would you be magnified? We're we're here to draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 really speaks to liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ. And then how do we use that freedom in relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, And at the end of chapter 9, Paul talked about running this race in a way so that he wouldn't get disqualified. And then chapter 10, he gives us an example of a group of people that did get disqualified. And it was the children of Israel that came out of Egypt, but didn't get to go into the promised land. When we talk about being disqualified, we're not talking about no longer being the child of God. That okay, God's forsaken you, you don't know him, you're not going to heaven. But what we are talking about is not entering into all that God has for our lives. And Paul's saying, I wanna live my life in such a way that I don't get disqualified for any opportunity that God would give to me. And that's really what happened to the children of Israel that wandered in the wilderness. They were still God's children. God never left them, God never forsook them, but they never entered into what God intended. They never entered into the promises that the Lord had. People estimate that going from Egypt to the Promised Land to Israel is roughly a two-week journey. If you look on a map, it's not very far from each other, but as you know, it took them 40 years just to get there, and then, once they came to the promised land and approached it with unbelief, and they wandered in the wilderness for another 40 years, then they died. That is a terrible existence right there. So, no doubt they're passing some of the same spots walking through. I was surprised a couple years ago uh, when we went to, to Israel and ventured down into this wilderness. It is really a wilderness, it's a desert. It's not a place that you would want to spend a week, let alone 80 years. And to think that that could be our spiritual lives, that God has a life of blessing for us, not a life that's easy. We know in the promised land there were still giants to face, but to see God moving, to see God working, to be empowered with the Spirit, to walk in the promises of God. So what's the difference? What keeps us from entering into God's promise? It really does come down to unbelief, And what 1 Corinthians 10 teaches us is there was so much going on in their lives spiritually leading up to that moment of unbelief. It wasn't like they got to the promised land and they're like, oh, I don't trust that God can defeat the giants. They hadn't been walking with the Lord all up to that point. So this chapter gives us a lot of insight, a lot of good, good challenges. Verse one of chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all baptized through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's taking them back to this group of people. They walked underneath the cloud in the wilderness. We're gonna see what God did for this generation. As they're going through the wilderness, God provided shade. They were literally led by the cloud. If you were walking through the wilderness, wouldn't you go where the shade was? And so God literally provided a cloud, and the scripture says they were under the cloud. Maybe you've studied this section of scripture before in Exodus and seen the cloud that God led them by day and the pillar of fire by night, so they would literally walk underneath the cloud. The word baptized, it means immersed. So they were immersed in the cloud. This gives us a great indication of how God would want to lead in our lives. Where's the shade? Where's God providing? Where's the peace? I want to go with the provision of the Lord. I want to go with where God is leading and God is providing. They went into the sea. What's that a reference to? The Red Sea. And all of this is a picture of our salvation. Pharaoh is a picture of our old man before we receive Christ our Savior, our taskmaster, if you would. And Jesus is the Passover lamb that delivered us from our old man. And where did Pharaoh pass away? In the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is a picture of baptism and how we've been immersed in Jesus Christ and the old man has perished and we're risen in newness of life. So we're under the cloud in Christ, were baptized in Christ. All of these were baptized into Moses, meaning that they were under the law. In verse three, all ate the same spiritual food. An amazing story of God's provision through the wilderness. God gave them manna by day. Every day, the Lord provided manna for them, except for on the Sabbath. They were allowed to collect enough for the Sabbath day so that they wouldn't have to work. When they got into the promised land, God stopped providing the manna. They all ate of the same spiritual food. Now who also claimed to be manna from heaven? Jesus, in the Gospel of John. He said, I am the manna that's come down from heaven. How do you get through every day? Hopefully, it's through Jesus Christ. He is that daily provision for us to get through life. I don't know if you've noticed, but God's design for life was not for it to be easy. Don't you wish that it was? Aren't you just kind of waiting for that breakthrough? Like, oh, maybe when we get to this point in life, things are, things are just gonna be easy. God's designed life in such a way that we need that daily provision of Christ. He's our manna. He's the bread of life. They all ate of the spiritual food. So all of this is pointing to Christ, We're in Christ, he is the cloud, he he is the, the water of baptism, and he is the bread from heaven that daily meets our needs, that was broken so that we could be made whole. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. If you haven't read this section of scripture for a while in Exodus and Numbers, you might want to go back and revisit some of these events. But there was two times where God provided water from a rock for the children of Israel. Mass multitude of people, nothing to drink, crying out to God the first time. God says, go ahead and strike the rock, Moses, and water came forth, and the rock was Jesus because Jesus was struck in order to provide that living water for us. The second time, Moses is a little bit frustrated with God's people. I'm amazed at the meekness, the power under control of Moses. The Bible tells us that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth, but he got angry with the children of Israel and he struck the rock the second time. And God said the second time to speak to the rock, why? Because the rock is Christ, and Jesus was only struck once to provide the living water. And the scripture tells us that Moses didn't fear the Lord. He didn't hollow the Lord. He didn't honor the Lord in the proper way. God wasn't upset with the people, but Moses was. And because of that, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. But both of those incidents, it was Christ, and it was pointing to Christ being the rock that was struck for us so that we could experience living water. Church, this is exactly what we need tonight. It's the middle summer. About this point, if your kids are in school, you start thinking, oh, August is coming. If you're in District 49, you have four weeks until school starts again. And you start thinking about school clothes and oh, and all these things that weigh upon you. And couldn't summer break just go to September 30th, you know? It's nice when the kids are out of school. School School's more flexible and all those kinds of things. And we need the water that only Jesus Christ can provide, the living water. He's the only one that can satisfy. And he was struck so that tonight we could come to him and say, Jesus, I just want to drink from the well that only you can provide. What was the children of Israel guilty for in their history going forward? is that they hewn cisterns, wells, they forsook the the well of God, and they tried to find satisfaction outside of a relationship with the Lord. Nothing was created to be living water other than Jesus Christ. If you're married and you're expecting your spouse to be living water, that's a really unfair expectation. You maybe have never thought of it this way, but you're asking them to be Jesus. They were never created to be Jesus. Only Jesus can be your living water. That's an unfair expectation. Maybe your kids, you have put them in a place where you're expecting them to be living water. That's a tough, tough requirement for kids to live up to. They're nowhere close to living water. They were never intended to be living water, but somewhere you got your wires crossed. Maybe you think the church is gonna be that satisfaction for you. Man, church is amazing. God's people are amazing, but God's people are also sinners, My friend uh, always used to say that Christians are like a manure. You know, you get them too close together and they really stink, but you (laughs) spread them out and they do a lot of good, right? And there's an aspect to that. We do all really stink. We're, we're, We're sinners and we're thankful for each other, but if you get that misunderstood and you start looking to a body of believers instead of to Christ, you're gonna find yourself in a place where you're really empty. Is it more education? Is it a better job? The list goes on and on. The rock is Christ. And from Christ came this spiritual drink. And that fountain is still flowing. The fountain of living water that Christ provides is still flowing. There's free refills that we can come to the Lord. But if you're like me, I can tend to get busy, get forgetful, get distracted, and not enter into that place of drinking of that living water. In verse 5, but most of them... God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So verses 1 through 4 is all that God did for Israel. And then verses 5 through 10 are all the things that Israel did wrong. And God says of most of them, he was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God is gracious because he was only well pleased with two of them, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two that got to go into the promised land of this generation because they were the only ones that saw the giants through the eyes of faith. The scripture tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. What pleases the Lord? Faith. That's what they lacked and that's why they didn't please the Lord. Of all generations that you would think would have faith, it would be the generation delivered out of Egypt. They saw all of the plagues. They saw... God parting the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army drowning. They ate manna every stinking morning spiritually from the Lord. That would be nice. God's providing breakfast. You just kids, you hungry? Go get it. It's right there. It's manna Cheerios. It's 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 right there for you. You, you, you can have it. Manicotti. Go for it. It's yours. Come on. Oh manna, there it is. The, God's providing for them in in these amazing ways. The scripture tells us their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out, this cloud every day, this pillar of fire, amazing victories that God brought in their life, but that when it come right down to it, they didn't trust the Lord. If we're waiting for signs and wonders to build our faith, it'll never come. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't enough to trust Christ, then we'll always be lacking in faith. If you're taking notes, there's five things specifically where they went wrong that were warned about in this section. Now I want to fast forward to verse 11 because it brings us to a place of attention. So let's look at verse 11, then we'll go back to verse 6. Now all these things happened to them as an examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. All of scripture is written for us, for our learning, for our exhortation. And God here specifically tells us that. Okay, experience is the best teacher. Would you agree? Bar none, experience is the best teacher. But why does it always have to be our experience? Why do we always have to learn personally? We can learn from other people's experience. I gotta tell you right now, July 1st, 2015, in the sanctuary of Rocky Mountain Calvary, this is the most comfortable place to learn. If you're taking notes, if your heart's open, if my heart's open, if we learn from these things, man, we're gonna be blessed. The things that Israel struggled in, I think, are things that we're all gonna struggle in as well. This is a group of people that love God, that wanted to follow God, that wanted to enter into God's promises, they got sidetracked. So the things that are gonna sidetrack them would be the same things that would sidetrack me and sidetrack you as well. So the first thing that we see in verse six, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So number one, they got off track because of lust. And right now, your mind is probably going to the sexual arena, thinking that that must have been the area that they fell into lust. And we'll find that there is sexual immorality in a few more verses, but the scripture is actually referring to Numbers 11, and interestingly enough, it was the desire for meat. It was the lust for meat. Lust can enter into every area of our life, including sexual sin, but not just to the exclusion of sexual sin. Here they were going through the wilderness, and if you read Numbers 11, they're going, oh man, it was so good back in Egypt. Now is that a true statement? They were slaves in Egypt. They were treated horribly in Egypt but they started saying things, oh do you remember the leeks and the onions? It's like they weren't accurately remembering their time of slavery. Just like we don't accurately remember our time before Christ and they got sick of God's provision. They got sick of the manna. I'm tired of eating all of this. Saying God would you just give to us meat? I just, I just want some meat. So God says, okay, here's a whole bunch of quail that's gonna come for you. And the scripture tells us they lusted so bad for the meat they didn't even bother to cook it and they just started ripping open the flesh and, you know, just this quail coming out, all this blood on their beards and it was gross, you know? And so God judged them for that. But how many times do we get to a place where we're just not content with what God's provided? I'm tired of this job, I'm tired of this house, I'm tired of this spouse, I hope not, right? And we say, I just, it used to be so good back then. God, why don't you just provide some meat for me? And that's the very simple definition of lust, it's longing for something that God hasn't provided. It's not being content with what the Lord has given to us. The secret of contentment is found in the presence of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, five and six says, "'Let your lifestyle be without covetousness, "'for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you.'" He said it, he's expressing, am I not enough? Do you have to have more? And that lust very quickly comes into our hearts and lives. And this is what we know is true about lust. Think this through, pray about it, is lust is like a fire, the more you feed it, the hotter it burns. So more you allow your heart and your mind to focus on this desire for something that God hasn't provided, it's gonna become stronger and stronger and stronger to a point where then it leads to actions. James chapter one tells us to be very careful with our thoughts because eventually those desires, they lead to actions and then the actions lead to sin and then sin leads to death. So thoughts lead to what? Actions. Actions lead to character, character results in consequences. So the battle's in our mind to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We live in a culture of lust, don't we? We're constantly being advertised lust. If I could just look like this, if I could act like that, if I could have this or have that, and God's saying, I've I've provided enough for you. So lust was the first thing that came in that led to them being disqualified from entering into the promised land. In verse 7, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and to rose up to play. So number two, idolatry and write down Exodus chapter 32. This is the golden calf experience. Moses goes up to receive the 10 commandments. They get nervous that Moses is gone, they tell Aaron why don't you build us a golden calf and they rise up in idolatry and the scripture tells us that they rose up to eat, to drink and to play while Moses was gone. What is ironic about this is the Egyptians worshiped a golden calf. God had delivered them from the Egyptians This is really throwing in the face of the Lord what God had done. And if you read that section in Exodus 32, they actually were were attributing their deliverance to this idol instead of to the Lord. And how quickly they went into idolatry. This was fast. This wasn't generations, this is the same generation. Not too long ago they'd been delivered out out of Egypt. And when we go into idolatry, we're attributing the deliverance that God has brought into our lives to some false god, to some false image. We talked about idolatry also in our study of 1 Samuel this last weekend. And the understanding of idols is there was a philosophy behind the worship. And could it be that idols have come into our hearts and in our lives? That's going to disqualify us. It's a heart issue. How do we get to the place where we're not caring about the Lord. We're not caring about the body of Christ. All we're caring about is our pleasure at that moment. Idolatry is entered in. The very simplest level, this is a worship issue. There's a worship problem. They've gotten their eyes off of the one true living God, and now they're worshiping this golden calf. Do you know the last thing that John the Apostle wrote to us in First John? He writes this excellent letter on love. He says, my dear little children, beware of idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. He knew that idols was the antithesis to love. It was the enemy of love. So number two, idolatry kept them from the promised land. In verse eight, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 fell. So number three, what disqualified them, sexual immorality, and you can write down the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, as they fell into sexual sin, or excuse me, Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. It's an amazing scene in the history of the nation of Israel. God begins to bring death upon their camp. 23,000 die in one day, and then one priest went into a tent where sexual sin was taking place, and he took a spear, and he actually put it through the couple and he said, I'm gonna put an end to the sexual immorality. And that ended God's judgment of wiping people out in that in that moment. I mean, that's pretty intense. I don't know of anything that really gets more intense uh, than that, and you're like, is that really in the Bible? Yep, it's in the Bible. Numbers 25, you can read it through. Uh, now let's talk about this on a heart level a little bit. How many people have you known that have entered into sexual immorality and has disqualified them from the good things that God has had in their lives. Now, God's gracious, and when there's repentance, God restores, and if you've committed sexual immorality, I don't want you to think you're beyond God's work and God's redemption. God is so good to be able to redeem, but there is this truth that runs with sexual immorality is it comes with a cost, doesn't it? The Proverbs tells us, how can you touch uh, hot coals and not be burned? And David's life is a testimony of that. He entered into sexual immorality. God forgave him. God restored him. But it was never quite the same for King David. And he was never able to speak into his kids' lives the way that he should have because of his sexual immorality. It was almost like, I'm guilty of this, so I can't address this in their lives. He lacked the courage to then step up and be able to address it in his children's life. So this is important. This is something for us to stop and take seriously and go, you know what, God, I want to be close to you. I want my life to be used by you. And God uses us by his grace and through his grace. And sexual purity is important. And we also know what plagues the church the greatest is sexual immorality. It's sexual sin inside of, of the church of God. And wherever you're at tonight, tonight's the night to be able to say, Lord, I want to commit to you to walk in sexual purity. And the enemy's going to tell you it's too late. You're too far gone. You've already been disqualified beyond repair. And that's not the case at all. If you're at the place tonight where you say, I want to repent. I want to walk with the Lord. And God's going to be quick to be able to restore and bring you in, in the right place. Scripture's gonna tell us in just a moment, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You've heard me say it maybe a few times over the years, but we're all just one decision away. I don't think Christians that are following after Christ plan out to be in sexual immorality. It's not that they go, oh, you know what? I really wanna hurt God's heart, hurt the body of Christ, and destroy my family. That, that's exactly why I got into the ministry. Yep, that's it, right there, you know? No one ever plans to be in that place. And all of these great men and women, if they can fall in these areas of lust, fall in these areas of idolatry, fall in these areas of of sexual immorality, then man, so too for us. We're just just one one decision away. And what areas is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart and your life in this area of sexual purity? He's saying, hey, watch your thoughts. Hey, Hey, watch your conversations. Watch your relationship with that with that person. Man, if you're walking in sexual purity, continue to draw near to the Lord. I think that that's the greatest legacy that you can leave for those that will come behind you. If, if you have children, grandchildren, if you're single, people are watching. It's a, a tremendous legacy. You know, as we're going through the New Testament here, sexual purity is just going to be hit over and over again in these epistles. It feels like I was just talking about this in chapter 6. Do you remember that? You know, I was up here blushing, and, and then in chapter 7, I was addressing it again, and there it is again, and and, and I'm blushing again in chapter 7, and now we're, we're in chapter 10, and there it is again, and it's like, man, it must be really important to the Lord, right? He knows it's important uh, in our lives, and so, we need to take heed. We need to examine our hearts and in our lives. And then verse four, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Now this is fascinating in Numbers chapter 21. is Notice it says that they tempted Christ. Christ didn't just come on the scene in the pages of scripture. Christ is God and they're tempting Christ by their complaining. That's why, how that they were tempting Christ. So God sends these serpents to start biting them. If you've noticed, if you just feel like your soul is bitten, uh, I just feel like I'm, I'm bitten, you know? It may be because of complaining. God just has a way of, of dealing with us in our, in our complaining. So they start to die from these snake bites. So God speaks to Moses and say, lift up a, a bronze serpent. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Here they're bitten by snakes, lift up a bronze serpent. And then Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he's that serpent, that he was lifted up as the serpent was lifted up. And then all that looked towards the bronze serpent, they were healed from these snake bites. And all those who look to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith are healed from the curse of sin. How are they tempting the Lord? through complaining. And then, very clearly, we find complaining addressed. So there's lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ, and complaining. And complaining is the fifth thing. Nor complaining is some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Oh, man. Complaining is so sneaky, isn't it? You might go, oh, you know, thankfully by God's grace I'm walking in Sexual purity tonight. I don't think there's any idols in my life, but I'm sure a grumpy Christian. I don't know why, but I think I pretty much have the gift of pessimism most of the time. If I were going to look at a situation, I can tell you all the things that are going to go wrong really fast. Well, have you considered this and have you considered that? I didn't sleep very good last night. You know, this coffee's not just quite right. We're going to need to get some different beans and all these different things that come to my mind, you know. And rejoicing in the Lord is a choice. Complaining is a choice. And complaining is sin. When I complain, when I grumble and complain, I'm sinning. But I got to tell you, I don't like to look at grumbling and complaining that way. I want to give myself a license for grumbling and complaining. This text doesn't give me a license for complaining. And God says, you're tempting me. Why are you tempting me? Because you're not thankful for what I've provided for you. You're not thankful for my very presence that's with you. This is a profound thought. You guys ready for this? Is complaining leads to more complaining. And thankfulness leads to more thankfulness. When we get into that mindset of woe is me and I'm so tired of this and why does this can't this change? We've got the wrong perspective of life. Jesus told us, it's gonna be tough. We know that, we can accept that. In this life, there will be tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Okay, God, we've got it settled. It's gonna be tough. You promised me that it's gonna be tough, but I'm rejoicing in who you are and complaining got them to the place when it was their moment of opportunity, they couldn't see God clearly enough to take the step of faith. Now it all makes sense. They were so filled with lust, idolatry, sexual sin, complaining that here God saying, I'm ready to do this great work, but they can't see it. Why can't they see it? Because of everything in this text. And it affects the way that we see the Lord. But when we choose to rejoice in the Lord... Not going with our feelings, not going with our emotions. God, I know you're good. I know you're merciful. I know you're long-suffering. This morning in Staff Devotions, we were talking about Psalms 36. And a lot of the Psalms, they begin with honesty before God. And we get to be honest before God. Like, God, this is really difficult. I don't understand this. Why are the wicked perishing? But then there's a transition in the Psalms where the psalmist starts to focus on, God, you're merciful, You're gracious, you're faithful, and the things that God has done for us, and that's where we have to make a transition. Okay, God, I'm being honest. This is really difficult, but you're merciful. It's easier said than done. I'll be completely honest with you. This is an area of my character that I'm seeking to grow in. I don't often outwardly complain. I, I don't, you know, and so because of that, I kind of feel better about the condition of my heart. Well, at least I'm not saying it out loud, you know but it can really be the mantra that's going on in my heart, and I want the mantra that's going through my heart, the goodness of God, and focusing on his faithfulness. I want to be ready at that moment when God says, here's the opportunity to step in faith, that by his grace I'm able to see him clearly instead of being clouded by complaining. In verse 11, we read it, we'll refer to it again. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Verse 12 So in light of this, therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. It's a powerful warning. Here's the application. The scriptures telling us this is what you do with these five things that I've warned you in. If we've just given ourselves the pass, oh, I've got that one got lust, got idolatry mastered, doing good, doing good, doing good. Then God says, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. As you study the kings in the Old Testament, most of them fell when things were going well. It's much more difficult spiritually to handle the blessings of God than sometimes to go through the trials that God allows in our lives. Because what happens? Pride comes in. Once pride comes in, then the fall is certain. They go hand in hand. I've I've got this. Underneath the sexual sin was this issue of pride. Underneath the idolatry was pride. Underneath the lust was pride. It was a dependence upon self instead of dependence upon the Lord. Verse 13 is worth memorizing, worth underlining, living out in our lives, No temptation has overtaken you except is common to man. Do you believe that tonight? What does our flesh tell us when we go through temptation to sin? I'm the only one that's ever been tempted like this. Nobody else understands. If they only understood how I was raised. Now I'm sorry for what you went through and how you're raised and I know that it was extremely difficult but God doesn't give us a pass on sin because of how we're raised. God doesn't look down and go, well, Eric, you're free to go on sin because of how you were raised. I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that you went through that as a kid and it was really unfortunate. So now you can just sin all you want. God doesn't do that. Well, you know, we're Irish. And <laughs> the Irish, they have tempers. And so God, you know, I'm pretty much just gonna have a temper. That's the way it is. God says, no, it's common. It's common. Everybody has gone through this. Maybe not the next person sitting next to you, but somebody else in life has gone through the exact same temptation that you or I have gone through. But we want to tell ourselves, no one has ever been tempted like this before. And God says, it's common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able so we contrast the temptation with the faithfulness of God. So here is the real temptation that comes from our flesh, from comes from this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, but God is faithful. He's not gonna allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. This doesn't mean that God is the one who is tempting you. James clears that up for us, he's good and he's not gonna come and tempt us with evil. But it does show that God is in control. That with every temptation, every temptation to sin, every temptation for lust, idolatry, covetousness, sexual immorality, there's a way of escape. But with the temptation, God will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Once again, do we believe the scriptures? every temptation, there's a possibility to run from temptation. There's a way of escape that God has provided. But my flesh doesn't like that because I want to play the victim card. There was no way out of this. there, There was no possible way that I could say no to this sin. You should have seen the way they cut me off. And then they flew the bird. You know what bird I'm talking about. And it was on after that, there, there was no way of escape. And God's saying, oh, there was a way of escape. It's called letting it go. I couldn't let it go. God, you're a God of justice. This, this is the way it's got to be. Nope, and the Lord's saying, I provided a way of escape. In Colorado Springs, how many exits do you think we have from north to south? Five? Seven? What do you think? 20? 20? four? How many of you guys think seven? Okay, how many of you think 20? Okay, you in the back. You think four? No, how many are you saying? More than 20? Wow, I don't know how many there are. That's what I'm asking you guys. (laughs) I have no idea how many there are. But let's say that you're going from north to south, and it is the highway of temptation you're coming to the city limits of Colorado Springs. And I, I don't know for sure, but I think the first exit in city limits is probably Interquest Parkway. If not, just let's pretend that it is, okay? Can we agree on that? There's that big sign, that kind of sandstone sign that says Colorado Springs, and you're coming into to Colorado Springs, and it's the highway of temptation for our illustration. The way of escape that God provides is always the first exit. Always the first exit. So on this highway of temptation, a lot of times, God's providing a way of escape, and it's the first exit. We ignore that. And then we come to North Academy, right? And the Holy Spirit's like saying, okay, I'm gracious, so here's another way of escape. And we're like, well, this is kind of fun. I kind of like this a little bit. I think I'll stay on. I'm not really saying yes to sin, but I'm not really saying no to sin. So I'm going to keep going. And now you're to Garden of the Gods, right? And God's still saying, here's another way of escape, and I don't know. And by the time you get to Pueblo, it's all over. <laughs> it is over, right? You have just full-on committed yourself to going south, quite literally, spiritually, okay? So we have to remember, let's say there's that temptation to get angry. Let's just all agree, we get, we get tempted to be angry. I get tempted to, to get angry and to, to blow my top. And the Holy Spirit is there saying, Eric, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. I'm Irish. <laughs> well, I'm not Irish, but I'm something, you know. I'm, I think that I think they really need to hear this. And the Holy Spirit's saying, Nope, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to write." Nope. I, and before I know it, I'm saying things I shouldn't say. And in anger, and it, it comes out. What, what was the way of escape that God has provided? It was that first exit, Is that first one. Unforgiveness and bitterness is there and God's providing the way of escape. He's pointing to the cross. He's saying, look what I did on the cross. Look what I said to those who were killing me. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Eric, I've forgiven you. Extend forgiveness. This is your time. Extend forgiveness. Choose forgiveness. No, I, I'm, I have the right. I'm gonna stay, stay in this place. Here's, here's the way of escape. It's late at night. Everybody's asleep. They're going to go check the news, men and women. And all of a sudden, there's an advertisement to an inappropriate site that doesn't glorify the Lord. It's completely intentional. They're trying to rope you into sexual immorality, rope me into sexual immorality. And the Holy Spirit, before we even went to check the news, is saying, don't go check the news. Get in the word. Go to prayer. Have a glass of milk. Go back to bed. You know, I just need to veg out a little bit. I just need to relax a little bit. The way of escape is always the first exit, agreed? Always the first exit. We're gonna take just a few more minutes as we close. Verse 13 is gonna be our last verse tonight. I want you to turn with me over to Matthew chapter four because Jesus gives us an example of taking the way of escape. Jesus is not gonna ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He gives us the model in Matthew chapter four and then he is the high priest that we run to in the midst of temptation. So we're gonna look at Matthew four quickly and Hebrews four quickly and then we'll be done this evening. Primarily gonna read these sections to you. You'll quickly see the model in which Jesus uses. This is Matthew four, verse one through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you are the son of god throw yourself down for it is written he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest they dash your foot against a stone satan quoted scripture but he didn't quote it accurately he left out important elements in verse 7 jesus said to him it is written again you shall not tempt the lord your god again the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. What did Christ use to overcome temptation? The word of God. It is written, It is written, it is written. And he quoted small sections of scripture. He did not quote Psalms 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. At that point we'd be going, there is no chance I could ever use this model that Christ has given. He gives us something that's accessible to us. Sometimes the temptation gets so thick and we've been so defeated in a certain area of our lives, we cannot even see the way of escape anymore. We can't even think of a possibility that our lives would be different, and you've gotta look to Christ and the power of his word and start memorizing short section of scripture that relate to a particular area of struggle that you know you always get tempted in and quote it out loud when you're tempted. If it is lust, go to BibleGateway.com and put in the phrase lust, the word lust, and you'll find some great verses. If it's anger, find some verses. If it's bitterness, find some verses. Write them down, memorize them. There's power in the word of God. That's your tool. That's what God has given to us. Hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against the Lord. Then let's look at Hebrews four. Hebrews chapter four. It's gonna be familiar to a lot of you. Hebrews four, verse 14 through 16. What I love about Jesus is he not only provides a model, but then he's the means to that model. He's not just a manual, here's a a bunch of instructions, he's Emmanuel, God with us. So we apply the word of God, we memorize it, we quote it out loud, but we also run to Jesus in that moment of temptation. Hebrews four, verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Christ understands the temptation, but he never gave in to the temptation. He knows what it feels like. So when we come to him, we know he's gonna be compassionate. So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need temptation comes. Look for the way of escape. Quote the word of God out loud. Run to Jesus Christ in that moment. Jesus, would you give me the grace and help right now to overcome this temptation? Then take the exit. Take the exit right then. Boom. God, you're providing the way of escape. You're providing an opportunity to walk away from this sin. You said you'd be faithful and you'd always provide a way of escape. So I'm looking for it. Help me find it. And I'm gonna walk in that way Of escape. So here's the big picture, gang, as we close tonight. You only got one life. You only got one life. I only got one life. And we can be the children of God, but not be walking in His plan for our lives. And one of the core values of our church, which means something that we focus on, is a simple phrase that we want to see the giants fall. And what that means is, is we want to experience the purpose for which God has saved us and called us. But the way to get to that place of trusting that God's big enough to defeat the giants is walking with Christ. And all of the things that we read tonight are the enemy of walking with Christ. And the importance of taking that road of escape is so that we can be in that place of fellowship with Christ, and used for God's glory. And is there anything better? At the end of our lives, wouldn't it be great to say, man, I made a lot of mistakes, I wasn't perfect, but I don't have any regrets, I don't have any regrets. Joshua was able to go to his grave and look around and go, gang, we're in the promised land. God knocked down the walls of Jericho. Instead of wandering in the wilderness, and dying in that place of unbelief. What is it, what, what, what would we desire? We would desire the testimony of Joshua and Caleb of walking with the Lord. These are important truths that we're gonna have opportunity to apply every single day. Every single day we're gonna have those opportunities to eat of Christ, drink of Christ, walk with Christ, say no to temptation, or give in to, to the temptation. As we take communion tonight, meet with the Lord. Think about what we read, that he's the rock that provides living water, that he's the bread of life that was broken for you. Open up your heart to him in that kind of honesty. Be honest about the complaining and allow it to move to a place of thanksgiving. Allow God to meet you in a special way in communion. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this section of scripture. I thank you that it was written for us, for our learning for our our abnomission and where we confess to you that so many times our our hearts are filled with all of the wrong things. So as we take communion tonight, would you meet us? Would you cause us to walk with you in a deeper way, to take to heart these truths that there is always a way of escape? Would you minister to hearts in, in areas of our lives where all we've known is defeat. Lord, would you give us the courage to begin to apply your word, to walk by faith, to quote your word, to run to you in those moments of temptation. Lord, you know every heart. You know those that don't know you, and we pray that tonight you would reveal yourself. In Jesus' name.